0: Sloppy Spoilers with your host, Spoilers. DT2. Spoilers. 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 Hello and welcome to another edition of Sloppy Spoilers. I'm your host, David Taylor II. You know me as DT2 Comics Chat on Twitter. Tonight we're going to be reviewing two episodes of The Mandalorian, episode 6 and episode 7. I'd like to welcome my co-host. Welcome to David Nemesis Howard. How you doing, Dave? And where can we find you on Twitter? Doing good. Uh, Glad to be here.
1: Excited to talk about the... Well, I'm not going to spoil it for everybody yet, but uh,
0: you can find me at NemesisFC2 on Twitter. All right, welcome to Steve Shade Wing Sellers. How you doing, Steve, and where can we find you on Twitter?
2: Doing pretty well. Uh, Just a simple man making his way through the galaxy, and uh, you can find me at uh, Shade Wing. It's uh, spelled pretty much the way it sounds.
0: Now, when Steve makes that quote, that is like his perfect anthem. Like, that needs to be a theme song, theme music. I'm just a simple man making my way through the galaxy. And I'd like to welcome uh, Jeff, Dr. Fate Bracey, how you doing, Jeff? And where can we find you on Twitter? Well, you can find me in a,
3: a galaxy that's actually not very far away and not very long ago. And uh, my uh, Twitter handle is Bracey, B-R-A-C-E-Y, 452, at
0: Bracey452. Awesome. So I think all of us are just simple men <laughs> trying to make our way through this new geek world that we live in. So we're going to start with the Mandalorian season two, uh, chapter 14, episode six, entitled The Tragedy. And it sure enough is, even though some good things happen. So, just to give you a brief recap Mando gets Baby Yoda slash Grogu to the Jedi toilet and uh, sits <laughs> him on it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I will never unsee that ever. <laughs> <laughs> And tells him to work his Jedi magic, because once again, it's one of those conveniences we just kind of have to accept for the sake of the story, that he finally found a Jedi in Ahsoka last episode, but I can't train him because of blah, 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 but maybe somebody else can. So if you go to the magic planet and sit on the magic toilet and you do the magic Jedi flush, okay. That's a lot of maybes, but anyway. So that's what he does, and a lot of things happen around him. Uh we finally get a good look at uh, Boba Fett and everything that he's about. Mm-hmm. Finnick is also there, another great character introduced uh, here. And then we get a good look at um, stormtroopers who just don't seem to be able to do anything well or right. We're going to talk about that. And then we get a good look at dark troopers, which everything for the stormtroopers was hard. And what the dark troopers do is always easy for them. It's always quite a contrast. And then, um, unfortunately, and I'm going to talk about this later, the trope that's been going on ever since Star Trek Three, the ship gets blown up, so the Razor Crest is toast. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. And then, um, so, it's just looks like Mando suffers quite a bit of losses, and he does. Fortunately, uh, Boba Fett and Finnick have some kind of code and have some kind of honor, and they agree to continue out their contract because they didn't get Grogu back. So they kind of throw in uh, with them. And uh, so shenanigans ensue, but we'll talk about that in detail. So as we uh, alluded to before, the title, the subtitle of this episode could be The Redemption of Boba Fett. So I'm going to start out with my general comments and throw it to my co-host. I will say this. For Filoni and Favreau, they surely understand what Star Wars fans want to see. (laughs) They understand it on such a fundamental level. That's why this show has been so successful. OK, they understand that we need to understand how, why did Boba Fett get punked so easily? Why did he go out like that, being one of the greatest body hunters in the galaxy? We need to see full strength Boba Fett. We don't need to see Diet Boba. We don't need to see Discount Boba. We need to see what is this man actually capable of? And we see it in this episode, not just with uh, blasters, but also hand to hand. without his armor and remember without this show we would uh, never really know what Beskar Armor could do this show helps us understand what Beskar Armor is actually capable of, why it's so valuable so even other incarnations of Star Wars have alluded to that and shown that, but it hasn't really been in live action and been as front and center and if you haven't watched all the Star Wars content and you just watched The Mandalorian You can understand the value of Beskar armor in this universe and why it's such a big deal and why they have code and the difference between the religious zealotry and the political part of being a Mandalorian. All that's been here. And watching what Boba Fett could do in his ship, what he could do with his jetpack, with the missiles on the pack, what a well-aimed missile could do. And I mean, it was just an incredible ride. It's one of the shortest episodes clocking in at about 31 minutes. And even though some very tragic tragic things happen, and Mando once again has kind of situational smarts because he tries to break Grogu out of the Jedi trance three times, and he gets thrown back by that powerful force field every time. He says, uh, I'm going to go defend you then. Well, really, genius? But okay. So, but overall, I really enjoyed it. Love Fennec, love Boba, love seeing him in action, you know, smashing stormtroopers. And let me throw out this out about stormtroopers. You know, I I still don't understand why the Emperor was using them, because their armor can't even stop blasters. Have you noticed there has been no version of the regular white-suited stormtroopers that don't get taken out by one blaster bolt? Why would you wear armor if it can't stop blaster fire? That ain't, I don't even understand that. It's like you don't have any armor on at all. So anyway, so the running joke of Stormtroopers is once again magnified here. But that's in stark contrast to both Boba and obviously Finnick and the Dark Troopers. Very, very different kind of thing. So it also does a wonderful job at setting us up to make us have to see What comes next? We have to see how Mando responds to this and how he recovers. Okay? So I'm going to throw it out to you guys. Give me your general impressions, and then we'll get into specifics. Start with Dave. Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm just going to hit on two things real quick so we can get right into the episode. Um, The first one was uh, Boba and everything. This, for uh, someone like me who has always been a fan of Boba Fett, this was just pure fan service. This made me so happy. This took me back to, I guess, what was like nine, ten years old when I saw Empire. And the first time I saw Boba standing on the bridge of the Star Destroyer and Vader pointing at him and going, no disintegrations. I was just like, this dude's a badass. And, and then, you know, everything that happened happened. So this episode made me so happy. Uh, loved every single second of Boba on screen and seeing what he could actually do. And uh, inspired me to put boba fett action figure back on my amazon wish list let's just put it at that <laughs> um then uh the other thing i wanted to hit on i was going to tell some other stuff but I, i'm going to choose to go here you were talking about the stormtroopers i think it's just a shame and i don't remember what star wars book it was it was a long time ago and i think it's got to be either one of the novelizations of the original saga or uh Splinter of the Mind's Eye, but whoever was writing it, and I think it was Splinter of the Mind's Eye, so it was Alan Dean Foster. Or yeah, Alan Dean Foster. Yep. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Wrote that the thing that was so special about, uh, and why the stormtroopers could beat like the normal people from Alderaan when they, you know, went out into the Corellian Corvette with Leia and stuff like that, versus people like Han and Luke and stuff who are just incredible shots was that in order to beat Stormtrooper armor, you had to hit it where it was weak. You had to hit him in the eye. You had to hit him at a joint or in the crease between the arms and the chest or something like that. You couldn't get through the armor, you know, with one shot in all those places. And that always made a lot of sense to me, but they have never done that in the movies. They just, Stormtroopers falling everywhere. And I think that is a shame because... They really have become a joke. Not only do they not hit anything. And there was another novelization I read somewhere where, you know, they explained some of the uh, Stormtroopers' ineptitude as being the power of the Force. You know, like the Jedi was working against them and causing them to miss and stuff like that. But I can't remember what that was. But the thing with the armor always stuck with me. and, And I think that is a missed opportunity over the years. I mean, it's been Lucas and everybody else is that if they had shown just once Stormtrooper armor actually deflecting a bolt or something like that, <laughs> then we would have been like, yeah, you know, for you to actually take them down with a shot, you, you got to hit them in the eye. You got to hit them wherever it is, which made a lot of sense to me. And, and I'm pretty sure it was Splinter in the mind's eye. And, and I think that is unfortunate because they have become uh, one of the worst jokes in the galaxy. And, and, and like DTC said in this episode, they just, They get destroyed by two people, basically. You know, Mando comes along eventually, but two people just actually took out, I don't know, was it 40, 50 Stormtroopers? It's like,
0: come on, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was was pitiful. Now, remember that uh, to our listening audience, uh, you know, we want to acknowledge that Dark Troopers were first introduced in various Star Wars video games. But it's another testament to the uh uh producers and the creative team that they will pull from different, you know, parts of the lore and incorporate it and make it work. That's why this show is still so powerful. Go ahead, Steve. Uh
2: yeah. General, general thoughts. Yeah, I, I will say I really did like this episode. Um I, I will agree with like a lot of what Nemesis said. I'll add a few things. Uh, one is that the director of this episode is one of my favorite directors of all mm-hmm. time, and that is Robert Rodriguez. Uh, this guy I have been a fan of since Desperado. Uh, I love the mariachi films. I awesome. love Machete. Um, I love the work that he did even not too long ago on Battle Angel Alita. This guy um, really knows how to do really great geek films. And um, he's absolutely a perfect fit for The Mandalorian uh, because he brings that Western sensibility, having done actual modern Western-type films, mm-hmm. um, on, a top, on, on top of the fact that he's also done science fiction films like Alita. So uh, bringing him in there was a stroke of genius, and I am glad they got him. And he really makes this episode work, even though it didn't have a whole lot in the way of content. The thing is what it makes up for it is, is that Rodriguez is such a good action director that all of the action scenes look awesome. Um, he knows how to stage them, he knows how to make it how to make it look good on the screen. Uh, I think he absolutely did a brilliant job here. He was a great choice, and I think it really shows in this episode. Um, I would say this is definitely one of my favorites of the season. Um, beyond that, I, I would say I was not a huge fan of Boba Fett back in the day. I did like him in Empire. Um, but the problem is is that Return of the Jedi really nerfed him and made him look like a complete uh, clown, um, which fortunately uh, he he was brought back in this episode. But I'm not surprised by that for a couple of reasons. One is that Dave Filoni... Uh, has a history of reviving these kinds of characters um, that look cool but have no substance. Uh, We saw this with Darth Maul in The Clone Wars. Um, And if anybody brought Darth Maul back and made him an actually decent character, it was Dave Filoni. Mm. So I'm not surprised that Filoni was able to come back again to do it with Boba Fett. And we know that he loves Boba Fett because he was actually in episodes of The Clone Wars as a kid. And even then, he wrote him as a fairly serious villain um, who was able to think ahead and, and was actually fairly dangerous, even as a child. Uh, so being able to see him as an adult played by Temuera Morrison now absolutely uh, earns it. I think that the, the way that he's built back up is convincing. Um, he looks like he's an equal to Din Djarin, and it's great to see these two guys fighting side by side against the Empire. I thought that that was really good. Yeah, the stormtroopers look like clowns, but they generally always have. My feeling always has been that uh, Palpatine um, was the kind of person who loves to throw overwhelming force, and he doesn't care who dies in the process because he's more concerned about numbers and intimidation than he does about actually keeping his troops alive. (laughs) So that's always kind of been uh, consistent with that. Um, Overall, I think that this was really good. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot substantively in terms of uh, new things that we learned. But it was nice to see the little bit of the misunderstanding fight, you know, leading to uh, the two Mando bros working together. Um, and it is and it's a lot of fun. I, I really did enjoy this episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot uh, packed in in a very small time. And again, I want to keen on something that Steve said about how uh, Rodriguez was a perfect fit for this. This is what happens when you put together the right creative team, yeah. and things like that matter that's why i keep saying stuff like that to all you writers and directors and producers and anybody listening to our podcast things like that matter when you have someone that's a good where their style their perspective is a good fit for the material you get this kind of quality so never forget that uh go ahead jeff
3: yeah the uh this is the episode I've really been waiting for ever since we first got uh, teases and rumors that Boba Fett was going to pop up in the series. This is what I've been waiting for since the first flip in Star Wars, when we had the Boba Fett action figure that I mailed off for, you know, in the 70s to get a hold of, like, who is this cool guy? And we had to wait till the second movie before we even got him. And then we got little teases of it because uh, Lucas, for some reason, the Boba Fett was going to play a much larger part in Return of the Jedi, uh, but that got, that changed, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, story ideas change as you go along, but he missed a real opportunity to really showcase him after all this build-up, Uh, this guy who was willing to fly off the barge and land on the skiff and get face-to-face with a dude with a lightsaber. I was like going like, oh my god, this is going to be badass! You know, like all this all this tech weapons versus like Luke's wizardry and and magic sword. This is going to mm. be great! And they they just they just kind of piffle it away. And Lucas has had a problem with uh with doing that with like some of his coolest villains, uh, the Darth Maul, the Darth Vader, General Grievous. They they all get kind of punked out. Uh, so uh, it it was nice to see like Django Fett. We got a little taste of like uh, what boba fett original was you know like oh this is his dad he's doing all this and then mandalorian helped scratch that boba fett itch but this this is really what we've always been waiting for to see boba fett really and truly in action uh doing what we always knew he could do It's like it's like getting that epic scene in rogue one with darth vader in the uh in the hallway just taking out all the poor rebel troopers
0: yes. now to get
3: into a, a little bit of uh what you guys have touched on uh Stormtroopers suffer from uh, from a, a movie plot device uh, like anybody who wears armor. If you're a fan of fantasy films as much as I am, you constantly see people getting killed with swords, even if they're wearing plate armor. Uh, they just <laughs> they take a shot across the, you know, I, I see like, you know, watching Vikings. They got leather armor. The other guys got chainmail armor. Some guys got plate armor. It doesn't matter if you're watching the movie Warcraft. All that. Guy gets hit with a sword, he drops. Same thing has happening to the stormtroopers; they just drop when they take a shot. Uh, there is a little bit of a, an expanded universe reason for this. If you watch the Clone Wars, you might have noticed that the clone armor would catch a shot from time to time, and these guys would sh- shrug it off or they would survive, you know, uh, heavy damage, explosions, blaster bolts. And uh, canonically, if you if you follow some of the books and the tech manuals and things they put out. The clone troopers had a different type of armor than the modern day stormtroopers. Uh, the, the clone troopers armor is big, bulky, heavy, and uh, basically uh, kind of ablates the shot. It's 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 made to like just take the hit and uh, keep on going like some real armor. Whereas a uh, stormtrooper armor is thinner and lighter because these guys aren't genetically modified, and it dissipates the energy. So oftentimes when we're seeing stormtroopers take hits, they're not actually dying according to this, but they they are stunned. They take the hit. It's it's like taking a a magnum load with a with a bulletproof vest. It's gonna knock you out if you're if you're not lucky. So there's a canonical excuse for that. But uh yeah, they just uh they still suffer from that old plot device. It doesn't matter what you're wearing, if the good guys are gonna win, they've got to be able to take you out pretty easy. Yeah, this is not directed
1: at you, Jeff, but they, they, the, the BS flag in the Howard household is waving on the canonical excuse for why swords going Well, you know,
3: it's like I said, it, it, if you look at the fantasy, it's the same thing. I can't tell you how many times, like, when you see guys in heavy armor, even if it's uh, chain mail or plate mail, swords aren't going to do jack to those guys. You need to beat them down with war hammers and maces and flails. But you know, uh, it's it's T V, so like the guy oh he took a he took a shot to the gut and I suppose he's disemboweled even though we can't see it from the camera angle.
1: Uh, They're
2: convenient well, canter and fodder, they gotta go down. Yeah.
1: Game, Game of Thrones was particularly bad at this. Uh was that Arya was fighting with uh I forget what style of weapon that is, but it's basically a thrusting weapon and she was uh, she's
3: basically She's basically got a rapier.
0: Yeah, and she's she's doing slashes, you know, with the ringers. Yep, so uh, continuing into this episode, getting into specifics, I'm going to hit on Stormtroopers a little bit more in a minute because there's some very specific things that jumped out at me. But before we get there, you know, we've already established that, you know, Grogu's got to go on top of the magic, you know, Jedi toilet on the magic rock and go into his Jedi trance. Um, what I want to talk about next is the weaving together of the Mandalorian codes and the clone wars. Mm. Cause there's a lot that happens when Boba comes face to face with Mando, with uh, a First of all, we see uh, the questioning of, you know, did you take the creed? Did you take the vow? It feels very much like maybe monks talking to me. People are men that are, taking a vow of celibacy, or some take a vow of poverty, or some take different vows, but there's a price to be paid to conform to that sect of your faith, of your religion. And so that becomes an issue because we know that Mando, you know, and, and we'll do with this in the next episode about what actually happens, but he doesn't believe he's supposed to ever take his helmet off. And he does, obviously, to eat and do a whole bunch of other things, but he does so in private. He's not supposed to it's like Bill Burr said, are you not supposed to take it off or are you not supposed to take it off in front of other people? So, but he believes very zealously in that. And everything about his armor, he literally earned it because we saw him earn it. Mm-hmm. And then here comes Boba making a challenge that he doesn't justify till later on in the episode, talking about it's his armor. But we know that Boba Fett is the quote unquote son of Django Fett. And so now we've tapped into the Clone Army and the Clone Wars, and now that whole thing began. Because wouldn't it be bizarre to you to be Boba Fett and fight stormtroopers? Because aren't they second and third and fourth generation copies of yourself or your dad? Hmm. That's another thing that jumped out at me. I was like, wait, 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 Boba Fett against stormtroopers. So on some level, those are copies of you. We just don't see their faces. Some strain in there has got to be a part of your Fett line. And so I thought it was very interesting all of those elements coming together in their first confrontation. Because uh, basically, then DeJarren said, how much of a Mandalorian are you really? What makes you think you, you have any kind of right to this armor? And now that we've established what Beskar armor really is and what it can do, we can understand that because we can see, you know, his, his uh, Mando's commitment to his creed but Boba is not anything he was originally created to be. He's not compliant. He's not submissive. He's not, he doesn't follow orders. He's a rebel that makes his own way. He's established his own identity and his own space in the universe. And I just thought all of those elements were quite fascinating. I thought there was actually some more there to be mined from that thing because, you know, how would you feel taking out, you know, clones about yourself and how did he survive the like pit and just so many different things. So I want to hear your thoughts about that confrontation and all the stuff I've thrown out. Start with bracing.
3: Oh, just one more quick aside. Uh, Something I forgot to say on the first thing is uh, one of the reasons TIE fighters are, they've got like all the speed and agility, but they're overall inferior to uh, like X-Wings is, uh, you know, they have the better armor, the better weaponry, uh, the hyperspace capability. Uh, which goes to the whole point about stormtroopers is it's like Steve said, like I'll uh, throw in big numbers. So basically the emperor is kind of cheap, you know, he's all about the mass production, but on back to the uh, confrontation. Uh, yeah, this is uh this is really cool. Really, really cool here because uh, I like the idea that Din Djarin is such an idealist. He's, he's, he's very devout of his religion. Uh, Boba Fett is like the the equivalent of a Mandalorian atheist, if you will. He, he wasn't raised to be a Mandalorian, even though he was raised with all the skills and training of a Mandalorian, because we will find out later in this episode that his father was a true Mandalorian. He was a founding, foundling. Uh, and in the expanded lore, you, you learn that he has been uh, basically kind of kicked out of Mandalorian society. So he got the legit uh, training he got uh you know for as, as long as he was alive and as a clone he was made to be 100% an individual truly his father's son uh the next generation of uh jango fett 2.0 if you will so i really like this confrontation between the two of them and because we never see uh in the previous uh stuff we never really see Boba without his helmet except as a, as a child uh cian how do you say his blasted name uh seeing morrison without his helmet and actually getting to see him emote even though i love the whole faceless mystique of boba fett uh was a lot of fun too that that contraposto between you know uh uh, uh mando who's got to do everything with his body language and the inflection of his voice and here is boba fett raw and exposed he doesn't even have armor you know he's wearing like You know Tusken Raider rags and stuff. Like it's it's a great contrast between this this pristinely armored guy in his helmet and his modulated voice and this this hairless scarred individual uh, wearing you know the uh, the the tatters of a basically like a a native tribe of a desert planet. Really great contrast and really effective for the scene. And once again, tying even more deeply into that whole uh, Western ethic. Uh, the aesthetic that we have going on in this series. Uh, so that was a really great moment. And I love his uh, his clear uh, determination and anger when he's talking about wanting to get his armor back. And the, you, you know, if they can't come to an agreement, he is going to get his armor back one way or another.
0: Well, I really like your phrase of a Mandalorian atheist, like he doesn't believe in the religious zealotry. He's he just a clearly, simple man making his way. <laughs> yeah, yes, but he clearly has code. Mm-hmm. Clearly has code. Go ahead, Steve.
2: Yeah, I, I think I'll just go ahead and build on it because I think that Jeff really made a lot of the important points with this. Um, in terms of his code, what I find interesting is that he's not really a believer in the Mandalorian code per se. I'm not even sure he considers himself to be that Mandalorian per se, um, except that his father was one. Um, but at the same time, his father was everything to him. And I think that, uh, this is where he gets a lot of his values this is where he gets a lot of his thinking. Um, you know, because at first, like for a long time, he wanted to get revenge on Mace Window, and, and we do see that being addressed in the Clone Wars series. Um, and then later on, it's just, okay, I'm just going to be a bounty hunter, but... At the same time, he prizes himself on being the best uh, at that, you know. He is somebody who uh, really works to be the best at uh, what he does, and he earns that. So he he really takes his professionalism seriously. Um, He also, he takes his, he has a code also as a bounty hunter. You know, I don't uh, give up on my targets, you know, I don't surrender, all these things. I don't stop until I get, you know, my man, you know. So this is kind of like very classic um, bounty hunter Western thinking, you know. So he, he really fits into that whole Western vibe that I think that uh, Din Djarin himself does. It's just that he doesn't do it from an angle of faith the way that uh, Din does. Um, Din is very much, you know, into the whole Mandalorian creed. You know, he's about Mandalorian honor. Whereas uh, Boba is really more honorable from a professional standpoint. Um, you know, he he's the guy who's determined to do the job right and to do it better than anybody else. And I think that that uh, gives them something in common, but it's also very different. And I think it's what makes them adversaries at first and also what leads to them uh, being almost like brothers in a sense. Uh, You know, not just because they fundamentally come from the same group of people, uh, but also because they both value honor and they both, uh, you know, value uh, professionalism and, you know, doing the job. You know, they they both know what it's like to be out there doing the dirty work. And I think that that kind of really shows and what makes them uh, bond together. Um, I I have to say, I also really like that we see a little bit of uh, him without the armor and just, you know, and it shows that he's not dependent on the armor like a lot of, uh, you know, guys are that that are able to do that. It's kind of like what was said about the Black Panther once is that basically, you know, take away everything. He's still the Black Panther and you're just a guy in a kiddie suit. Um, Boba, if you take Boba Fett's (laughs) armor away, he is still a badass and he will still kick your ass. And we see that here in this episode. And one thing I really like is that we show that he uses these other skills that he has, you know, not relying on his Mandalorian weapons. He uses a gaffy stick, uh, probably one he got from Tatooine from a sand person, you know. know, And and we find it's because of his Maori background that that he does this. So, yeah, there are a lot of really interesting things um, involving these characters that I think, makes their dynamic interesting and why I can't really, I really can't wait to see more of Boba even after this. Um, just really, really
0: great stuff. What about fighting copies of yourself and crushing them in their helmets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not so
2: sure he necessarily is uh, fighting himself to a certain extent because I, I, I've always got the feeling that after uh, the Empire took over, they phased out the clones. Um, mm-hmm. I never really got the sense that, that any of the people that – we see Luke and Han fighting are, are necessarily clones of Morrison. (laughs) I just don't get this. I just don't, just don't get that sense. If I Um, could add to
3: that for a sec. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Supposedly. I mean, especially in extended universe and you definitely see it later on as the, as we'll, we'll see older clones and like rebels and things like that. Clones do get phased out for just standard galactic humans, but also let's look at what Boba Fett does when he first comes on the scene. He, 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 uh he argues from strength by threatening to kill the child which speaks to boba's he might have a code but he is still a ruthless bounty hunter yeah so and i he has don't think he have any problem killing clones of himself
2: no i don't think he does either and we actually see at one point he infiltrates a clone batch um when he's a kid oh yes yeah so he you know and he does not care a single whit that these people are biologically his brothers he doesn't uh, belong to them he wasn't raised among them they mean nothing to him i don't think that he really cares uh, at, at all, really.
0: Okay. Okay, I definitely found it to be at least, you know, noteworthy. I'm like, that's got to feel bizarre, but, you know, maybe not. You know, Go ahead, Nemesis. Con-
3: he probably considers clones inferior because they were created to be inhibited, unlike him.
1: Well, I'm going to say that I don't know if this has been retconned because I don't think that these particular books were part of the extended universe, but they were considered canon once upon a time, but in Splinter in the Mind's Eye, I, I, this is one of my favorite books, I hate to keep going back to it, but that one in the Han Solo trilogies, they specifically referenced that um, Stormtroopers, they did talk about clones in those books, but that the clones were phased out because of, of um, expense and because mostly they had been part of the Clone Wars, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. when the galaxy, you know, the Empire expanded to rule the galaxy, they needed a much larger force, and so stormtroopers became uh, just normal, everyday people that were, you know, trained and were part of the stormtrooper force, and that was also part of the explanation as why they sucked. You know? As far as, like, <laughs> yeah, I, really I think they established at
2: one point that Han had been a stormtrooper at one point, so if that's the case, they definitely were taking in people that were not uh, necessarily clones, uh, and of yeah. course Finn later.
0: Yeah. Well, um, you know, the reason Saying that is because of the origin of them. Because if Boba survived, he can't be the only one. So I'm just saying, if I was in a situation like that, I would always wonder who's underneath that helmet. Because one of them times, you're going to pull off that helmet and it's going to be your clone brother. But anyway. Yeah, I
1: mean, Captain Rex is still alive, so it's only talking about all You know, you guys hit on a lot of the good points. The only thing I'm going to go to and this is a question, I think I need to go back and rewatch this episode because we were talking about Boba Fett and his Mandalorian origin or his Mandalorian background or whatever. I remember a line in this episode where he explicitly states that he's not a Mandalorian at all and that Jango Fett got the armor from Mandalorians as payment for a service yeah, and that that's- the armor, and that the armor was registered to him, and that's why he was allowed to keep it. And that's why that you know they, they made a big fuss about it. I thought it was like towards the end of the episode.
3: No, I just yeah. I, I just rewatched the episode before we did it, and um, he he shows Din Djarin that uh, his father. You know, he shows like here's my genetic code that's in here, and then there's my father. He's like, yeah. oh, so your dad was a foundling. He says yes. Then the armor is yours.
1: Okay, so this dad was a foundling. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, then I misunderstood that part. But then, you know, that does beg the question. So now we've seen, you know, basically three classes of Mandalorians. We've seen the religious zealot- zealots, which is Din Djarin, and those people. We've seen, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, ethnic slash secular Mandalorians, which is mm-hmm. uh, Bo-Katan and, and that crew. Mm-hmm. And then we've seen foundlings who have not been brought into that religious cult, but are still considered, I don't know, some uh, social strata of Mandalorian. So it's really an interesting culture. It's really, uh, whether it's intentional or not, it really is reminiscent of Sparta. Mm. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: And, and what they had there. It really is. I mean, yep. you almost had the same exact... You had Spartans who were ethically Spartan. You had Spartans who were part of this... Uh, you know, cult of Ares and and all of that that grew up in Sparta, and then you had Spartans that were adopted in, and some of them were slaves that were elevated themselves, but were you know could earn Spartan citizenship and be warriors themselves. So it really is Mandalorians are really are the Spartans of the Star Wars universe.
0: Now that makes sense. That in that context, that actually makes a lot of sense and um, uh, kind of weaves together the different motivations. And that's why I think the lore is so rich. I mean, I can understand, you know, why you enjoy them so, because there's so much more there to explore. They escape the Star Trek trope of a global culture where everybody from one planet or one anything is all the same. That's not true for Mandalorians. That's what makes them so incredibly interesting. I was hoping that at some point we would get the same treatment for Wookiees. I know we do in the extended universe, but I'm talking about somewhere on screen where we could see that all the Wookiees are not like Chewie. And obviously the biggest uh, issue with what I'm saying is whatever type of species Yoda and Grogu are, because we've only seen three of them to my knowledge. Correct me if I'm wrong. We've seen Yoda, Yaddle and Grogu. So if there are any more, any other elements, let me know. Yeah, there is saying,
2: one uh, Master Vandar Takari from the Old Republic. But I mean, I don't know if he's still canon or not.
3: And there's there's a couple of examples in the comics, but as far as cinematically, only those three.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so some people have said that that needs to remain a mystery. We don't need to know everything about him, which is cool. Uh, I wouldn't mind knowing more if it's a well written story. But if it just mm-hmm. degrades them in any way, then pass. But anyway, My overall point there is how just in 30 minutes, so much about Boba Fett has received an upgrade. This is what happens when you put some respect on the name. And we didn't get all of our questions answered, but we did get some of them answered. And it's a great end story reason to see him fully armored again and to see a full service, full force Boba Fett. Okay. And I've already mentioned everything about the Stormtroopers. And again, he hit them so hard. That their helmet shattered. So either he's super strong, or that armor is super weak and stupid, or both. Because I'm like, can your armor stop any blow of any kind? Looks like that answer <laughs> is no. So let's <laughs> move <laughs> to um. So whatever was happening with the force, and remember, I've said it several times now, this whole thing is just kind of a crapshoot from Ahsoka. She said maybe. A Jedi will sense that in the Force, and maybe a Jedi will will reach out to him. What if that Jedi has the same response to him that Ahsoka does? I can't train him because of blah, blah, blah. So it's all a big crapshoot, as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, so he does his thing, force field going, Mando can't get in, tries three times. I'm like, dude, you should have learned after time. I wouldn't have gone up there a second time. It's like sticking your hand in your your electrical box in your house. But anyway, so we see the dark troopers. Now, the thing that amazed me the most about the dark troopers, at first I, you know, call chicken crap. But Then I'm like, okay, no, no, no. He just had that big experience with the force. Of course, he's going to be tired. They've established that when he uses the force on any level, it really kind of wears him out because he's not fully trained yet. Because the Dark Troopers li- literally just land and take him. Me, personally, I was expecting a fight. But, again, I thought that at least Manda would get there on time, or I thought Grogu would do something, but he's exhausted, so I have to give him that. But the Dark Troopers just, just show up and like, okay, well, we got it, and then they leave. And the Razor Crest is also blown to smithereens. So what I want to throw out to you guys is, how did you feel about that whole sequence of events, and did you feel like it was uh, Empire Strikes back esque you know, kind of No Hope or odds Against You kind of thing? How did you feel about just watching all that happen? Because a part of me feels like it was just a little too easy, I don't know. Maybe the Stormtroopers were a diversion, I, I don't know, but a part of me feels like that happened just a little too easy, I don't know. I could be being nitpicky. That's why I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, so tell me about the Dark Troopers and making off with Grogu and the Razor Crest just getting obliterated with one blaster shot from the sky. Uh, Star Wars Steve.
2: Oh, my God. This poor ship. This ship keeps taking so much punishment this season. Uh, and it's just like uh, some of it, you know, some of it I can understand because there's a certain amount of wear and tear that you see. And then some of it is just eye rolling like the, the way that it just gets beaten the crap out of in the first couple of episodes to the point where it's basically limping over uh, to that water planet. Um, so we, and we see, and now we're seeing it getting blown up and I'm like, really, <laughs> do we have to go through this? I mean, I, I kind of see it on one level. Um, I really feel like this episode in many ways is the end of a second act uh, for this season. Um, so things had to go really bad. Things had to go south. Uh, we needed to see a wake up call saying, okay, yeah, this is the episode where things are not going to go good for Mando. This is the episode which, you know, makes him take a step back so he can take another step forward. Uh, so so I kind of get um, on a save the cat level um, that, that there had to be um, a, a tragedy, especially since, you know, that's the title of this episode. Uh, and does it live up to that? Yes. Um, on the other hand, there are kind of points where it felt contrived. I would have liked to see a little bit of a fight um, between Mando and the dark troopers before they took him. Um, I would have liked to have seen some effort I mean I'm okay with the with with grogu getting tired and you know and just falling out and, and the shield going down and then I'm swooping in and taking him. I don't have a problem with that. I just would have liked to actually show the dark troopers you know maybe getting the better of Mando because as we see later, these things are really nasty in a fight. These things are really tough and I would have liked to see like Mando go up against just one of them and having it kick his ass in addition to that, just so we see Mando actually putting up a fight uh, so that we see uh, that it kind of earns its reputation. It earns its reputation in the finale. uh, But I would have liked to have seen a little bit of that here. Does it ruin the episode for me? No. Um, Does it make it less exciting or less entertaining or less fun? No. Um, But at the same time, it's just one of the, the one moment in the episode where i kind of feel like uh, my BS sensor was sort of tingling (laughs) um, just a little bit, but you know, uh, it was a perfectly fine episode, despite all of that. I mean, it had to, to happen in some way. Uh, they need to provide Mando the motivation to do what he does in the next couple of episodes, and they need to set up the finale. and And, and this is the way that they're doing that. Um, you know, I, I can understand it. It could have been it could have been executed better, sure. Um, but it's not like a cardinal sin or anything. I just really hate seeing the Razor Crest getting blown to smithereens and and messed up, especially after it's been taking so much of a beating this whole episode, uh, this whole season.
0: Yeah, okay. Good to know it wasn't just me, but everything you said is right. They do have to set up what's coming next some kind of way. So that makes sense. But it's good to know the little detector going off wasn't just me. Uh, go ahead, Bracey.
3: Uh, alas, poor Razor Crests. I knew you well. <laughs> you know, they just got the doggone ship fixed. <laughs> they blow it up. And you know, this was uh this was really impactful because one thing about Star Wars is iconic characters have iconic ships. And we were with the Reza a whole season and then half of this season. You know, that's why I, like uh when we got into the the sequels and found out that Han Solo had lost the Millennium Falcon for like twenty years. I was like, I was like, no, that doesn't happen. Han Solo just doesn't lose the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> that's He's, right. Yeah, that's that ship is his home. The Razor cl- Crest is clearly uh, Din Djarin's home. You know, all these all these characters. You know, Darth Maul had his own epic ship. Uh, Darth Vader had his own epic ship. Kylo Ren has his own epic ship. All these really identifiable characters, even Luke, even though it's just a X-Wing, you know, you know, that X-Wing is Red Five. You know, that X-Wing is Red Five. You know, there's uh, there's there's just things you don't do. You don't. And so like that was like, oh, that was like a big moment for me. And not only that, he lost his coolest weapon. He lost his disintegration rifle, like, you know, which was such a payoff from Empire. Like you talk about how far back Filoni goes with his with his lore. When he's telling Boba Fett no disintegrations and we get into the Mandalorian, we actually see disintegrations like, yes. I mean, he's got the Beskar spear, which is cool, but it's like, I'm really going to miss that rifle. I'm going to miss that rifle so much. Now, as for the uh, the setup of the plot, as soon as as soon as uh, Grogu uh, got through sending his uh, force message out into space and I saw him like tumbling over I was like, yep, this is when they're going to get him. He's not going to be able to defend himself because he's done expending himself through the force. So, having the stormtroopers, I fully believe, was a diversion. And then sending the, the dark troopers out to get him made sense to me tactically. Everybody was well away from the mountain. It was really easy to get him at that point and take off. Uh, the only problem I had with the scene is given how high the, uh, the Imperial light cruiser was. It mm-hmm. like I, I don't know what kind of uh propulsion system these things are using, especially since the jets are in the bottom of their feet and not a, not a backpack uh, like the mandos use or even the uh, the old canon dark troopers back in the games and uh, and things like that. But I'm always wondering about like you know what's the power source and how much fuel do they have to go from like low low orbit by the looks of things to like get all the way back up to the just the uh, uh, the nap of the atmosphere. But maybe that's just me being too nerdy on it. Uh, I did, I did kind of want like a little bit of a fight, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad they didn't in a way. Because in the finale episode, uh, the gang doesn't know precisely what they're up against. And if they had a clue, they would have changed their approach. And so I like the, the overwhelming power of the dark troopers, as we'll see later. Becomes as a really horrific surprise to them all, and it makes the climax of that last episode so much more grim when they think there's no possible way we can survive this. So for me, it worked out, but I could have, I would have liked to have seen it the other way as well. That's because I, I just really like the action, and Robert Rodriguez is so good at that
0: sort of thing. Cool. Go ahead, Nemesis.
1: Yeah, I'm just gonna add, I guess, my thoughts on. Uh on the two points you brought up since you guys hit really well on the the actual plot points and what happened. As far as um this episode, the fight with the dark troopers, I think that this episode and the next one that we're going to be talking about in a moment were really I'm not going to say filler episodes because I think that's unfair. But I think they already knew where they were going, but they needed to to fill out eight episodes. So they needed to put something in there to hold our attention until they got to the end point where they needed to go. So they came up with these two stories. And I think, uh, just point about, uh, the dark troopers is really well taken is that they already knew that the dark troopers were going to be a major part. I'm sure of that last of the last episode, sloppy spoilers for everybody. So, uh, they didn't want to give away, you know, they didn't want to show their hand. So they used them in this, context because they needed Grogu to be up on that ship because they need to get to the plot of the last episode but they just used them as a device um that doesn't take away from the enjoyment of the episode it was good they did stuff with Boba Fett which is gonna set up other stuff and all the other things but I really think these last two episodes were just a way of of filling out the season to get them to episode eight um as far as the Razor Crest the only thing I'm going to add to that is that uh, you know you guys said all of the, the story stuff, the geek stuff really well. The best meme I saw about that was showing a picture of the Razor Crest exploding and then going to a picture of Obi-Wan, but they put... Disney toy department over his face. it says, I sense a great disturbance in the forest. So. <laughs> <laughs> all I'm going to say is "I there better be a
2: Razor Crest 2 next season. That's
1: all I'm going to yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you know that there were people in the Disney toy department just crying when they saw him destroy the <laughs> Razor Crest. So.
0: Wow, well that kind of makes it more valuable if they put out a toy now. Like, hey, they're <laughs> Okay, so we're going to head towards wrapping this one up. We're going to talk about the last scene uh, to close it out. Uh, The last scene jumped out at me because, how can I say it? Because as incredible and action-packed as everything was up to this point, this scene was downright sinister. So uh, before we get there, uh, Bova successfully negotiates the armor and his there's a reason behind armor. We talked about that from Mando and Mando uh, wants to take a stop to talk to Cara Dune, who's officially taken on her capacity, you know, in the new Republic and then want to track down Mayfield, the Bill Burr character, which we'll talk about next episode. Um, and then, uh, so that kind of sets that up and we'll t- be talking about that in a minute, but we very briefly get a glimpse of what Grogu's life uh is now, now that he's been captured and what that means. And once again, I guess he got rested up from his time on the Jedi Hill to the time we seen again, see him again, because he's throwing storm troops around, man, like, uh, oh, I don't know, man, he's doing force chokes. I never miss a force choke because that is an Anakin Skywalker move. Luke did it and Grogu does it. I find very interesting. He's throwing those storm troops around, man, like they're nothing. Like they're nothing. He's not straining. He's just like, yeah, okay. Y'all ain't taking me today. How about that? So then he finally ends up wearing himself out, though, from doing it too much, from overexertion. And, of course, Moff Gideon is just, you know, Giancarlo knows how to play a villain. (laughs) Every villain he plays is just memorable and sinister. And you can feel it coming off him. And he pulls out the dark saber and basically threatens him with it and tells, you know, says to put him in shackles which I didn't believe could really hold him unless they're forced dampening shackles. But anyway, so it was like it was really sinister. Like, you know, they're not going to kill him. But, you know, Moff Gideon is not above any level of torture because he messes with your mind like that. So I was like, wow. So that ending was way more intense than I uh, expected. And it was just like, wow. So once again, that to me was probably the best part of, if things had to happen the way they did, that to me was the best part. Because now we really feel like Grogu's in some real danger. Even if he survives, he can be tortured. He can be cut upon. He can be dissected. Anything, well, he wouldn't survive a dissection, but you understand my point. Anything can happen now. And that's what I think they showed us with that last scene. So brief, yet so sinister. So let me hear your thoughts about that last scene. i start with Nemesis.
1: Yeah, the only thing I'm going to say is that uh, watching this, I was exactly like you with the Force chokes and everything. I felt the same way about Luke and Jedi. And it always takes me back to that line from Empire with Yoda. Once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Mm. And now Grogu is obviously on, you know, has started down that dark path. And he's being taught by the Jedi Master who also is going to go down that who went down that dark path at least to some
0: extent and that's a whole another conversation we're going to save for episode 8 because there's been talk about do all roads lead to Jake Skywalker do all roads lead to the sequel trilogy and we are definitely going to get into that for our last episode but yeah so we'll, we'll come back and revisit that but that's a great quote and that's a great point and you know we do need to talk about once you start doing you know little little light side versus dark side stuff. How does that affect you? How does that affect you as a Jedi? How far can you go and still call yourself a Jedi? Because remember that was Ahsoka's thing last episode, uh, separating herself from an order that she didn't like the way things went. Uh, go ahead, Steve. That last scene.
2: Yeah, I, I want to say um, Giancarlo Esposito is so good at Moff Gideon. Uh, he's You can tell he's really enjoying playing this character. I mean, you could just see, like, the evil glee that's in his eyes when he sees things starting to go his way, and he's watching uh, Grogu do his bit, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to shut down this little, uh, you know what, uh, in just a bit. And he does, and he, he doesn't because he, he, he definitely sees... The weaknesses of his enemies and how to exploit them. Um, He's a very smart villain. Um, He is truly evil uh, in a way that's entertaining and not like over the top ridiculous. Um, He's he's very pragmatically evil. Um, And it's just, and he's just uh, really does such a great job with this. Um, It actually kind of reminds me of like uh, a quote uh, from Esposito where uh, he was saying that his daughters were begging him uh, not to kill poor little Grogu. And his response is, I'm going to kill that little bastard. He absolutely (laughs) knows how to commit to the bit, and he loves playing this character. I just thought that was just so funny. Um, But, I mean, it just shows, like, he's definitely a method uh, actor, and he knows, and he's really into this role. And when he's into a role like this, um, he just does so much of his best work. And and he definitely has done that with Moth Gideon. Um, as for Grogu, yeah, I can definitely see uh, signs of, of his call to darkness, shall we say? And it may even be that um, uh, Moff Gideon wants to encourage that. Maybe on some level, it's not just that he wants to use him as an experiment. You know, maybe part of him is hoping, you know, can I make this kid fall to the dark side and you know and may and have him serve me? Um, because that would be a lot more advantageous to him uh, than just uh, using him as a guinea pig. Uh, So it could be that there's that in his mind. I mean, I'm not sure that that would ever really play out like that. But it is certainly, you know, something that has to have crossed his mind at least once, Um, because you can definitely tell he is doing the torch choke. Um, You know, he definitely does not like uh, these people. And he's, you know, and he definitely is showing signs of anger, even hate um, towards the the Empire. I mean, because they tortured him. They 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 dissected him, basically. Uh, They took his life from him. Uh, they took they tore him away from the people that he knew and cared about in the Jedi temple. Um, you know deep down there has to be some awareness of this on the part of Rogu um, and he, you know so there's definitely reasons that he would have you know to fall to anger and hate. Um, but the one thing is that you know he, he has his love for mando and that's um, and I think to a certain extent it saves him as well as it threatens him because there's definitely the feeling of um, you know you took me away from my father. Uh, aspect but there's also the hope that he has that his father will come save him which um you know spoilers uh he does come to do that um but i think that it it really is really it raises a lot of really interesting questions and yet it's just a simple uh and effective uh villain uh twirling his mustache scene and it is fun and it's just it's just a great scene to end it on
0: great scene go ahead jeff
3: okay uh just briefly, because I didn't think, I, I thought we were going to go into that. Uh, another, more appreciation for Filoni and the way that he will dig into what's past, and he he clearly knows the lore. Uh, having collected a number of the Star Wars technical manuals over the years, uh, I know everything they've written about what Boba Fett's armor should or shouldn't be able to do. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I was, not just to see him, uh firing off his rockets from his gauntlet, and later on, you know in the next episode, we'll see him use his uh his fiber cord and his uh and his flamethrower. But the fact that for the first time, we actually got to see him use his knee darts on those stormtroopers.
0: yeah, yes,
3: yeah, so I was like, oh man, he's firing the knee darts. I couldn't believe it, And, like I'm hoping that at some point he'll use the spike tips on his boots to kick somebody and really hurt him. <laughs> Because he's, he's got all kinds of cool things that, you know, just never showed up in the original movie. So I'm so excited to see stuff like that. But on to the scene. Oh, man. Moff Gideon is such a perfect villain. He's He's everything you hate about a villain. And yet he can also, he's not just ruthless, but he's also can be very charming as well when he wants to. He's... Oh, he's, he's that kind of guy you love to hate, but not just absolutely loathe in like a Joffrey from Game of Thrones sort of way. Uh, he's, he's got the sort of charisma, uh, which once again, Gene Carlo shows that with his, uh, his portrayal in the boys, uh, uh you know, it's just, he's just so doggone good. And, and like, uh, you guys have said, like, he, he really sinks his teeth into these villain roles. He really loves that. Uh, and you can just see it. That sort of, And when when he's smiling, he's watching his poor troopers get thrashed to pieces by Grogu. And he's just like, yeah, go ahead, wear yourself out before I step in the room. It's all good. You can just see it working in his mind. And so now I have to wonder, because like Steve, I wonder if he's not just going to use him to try and create super soldiers. There's a problem when you try and make somebody who's more powerful than you. Uh, They might supplant you at some point. So I speculated... If he is going to uh, potentially not just use Grogu as a science experiment, because I've thought about him uh, putting him in a place of power, the Empire needs an Emperor, and uh, Palpatine was so undisputedly the leader of the Empire because he was just so powerful, he had attributes that no mortal man had. So what if he's looking, what if Gideon is looking for somebody to take that role, or If all of his experiments, if he's trying to find a way to make the midi-chlorians, the Jedi Force blood, whatever you want to call it, work on a subject, if that can be transferred, if he's not going to put, uh, you know, basically raise up Grogu in the sort of Anakin role that uh, Palpatine had for him, uh, making him the next generation of Sith, what if he's looking for a way to empower himself? What if he sees himself as the next emperor, and that's the ultimate goal? is to make himself the new dark sorcerer of the empire.
0: Hmm. See, that is not far-fetched at all. That's interesting. That definitely definitely is in the realm of, of plausibility for that character. So <clears throat> whatever happens from here on out, that would be something worth exploring. Because, you know, there's so many people who wanted to take up the Emperor's mantle after he was dead, or at least get their little corner of the universe. And they wanted to control enough Empire resources to make that happen. And precisely. because kind of, makes sense. So kind of makes sense in the world if you buy into the concept of the Empire in the first place.
3: And what's the so, one way you could solidify all these factions? Because you know all these high-ranking moffs and admirals and gener- generals all think they're the best guy for the job. Well, if I have undisputed power then obviously you've got to fall in line to me. Yeah.
2: I, I think he wants power for himself. I don't think he would cede it to anybody else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't either. And um, every villain has the same plot though. They always want super soldiers. They always want some kind of way to make an unbeatable army that never goes away, but all right, we're going to wrap this one up um, again. One of the shorter episodes, but still packed with lore and action Answering some questions, leaving others unanswered, setting up what's to come, and overall, very, very enjoyable. And my thing is always rewatchable. Do I want to watch it again, and can I enjoy it again the second time? My answer for both of those questions is yes. So uh, I definitely enjoyed this one. Okay, we're going to take a little five-minute break. We're going to let you listen to some of our sponsors, and you can find out some of the other things we have going on. On the United Capes Podcast Network, and we will be back in five.
2: From the aisles to the review station, Undercover Capes brings you all things action figure related. Join host Bob O'Mack as he shares his insights and thoughts on the plastic revolution.
0: All right, folks, we're back. Thanks for sticking with us. And uh, we're going to jump into The Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 7, entitled The Believer. Just to give you a quick recap, uh, long story short, uh, Mando goes and gets uh, Mayfield to uh, help him on uh, assignment to get certain codes and to get the location of Moff Gideon's ship and to infiltrate... uh, everything about that so they can access uh, Grogu's location and uh, a little bit convenient that he needs him of all people. But you know, that's what makes the episode. Um, There's some things in this episode I did like and things I didn't like. I'll get to what I didn't like more towards the end when we see kind of Mayfield's last choice and what happens to him, but I'll just throw it out now. And that is that, I was very disappointed he didn't, quote-unquote, stay a villain, stay a bad guy. And I'll tell you why when we get to that part. Um, Not every antagonist needs a redemption arc. And some of them are much more interesting as antagonists. And so, but I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get there. Another thing I want to throw out about this episode is, you know, I'm always... Uh, hypersensitive to woke stuff this is an episode where everybody got to shine but they didn't have to put down the men to do it mm-hmm. so Finnick is great at her best Cara Dune most definitely at her best two great characters that are just a, a wonderful a part uh, of this story world but it did not require diminishing of Mandor or Mayfield in any way for them to shine out, but rather they all work together, or Boba Fett as well. So this is what I mean about how I say you can write story content that has strength in characters all the way around, and it doesn't require bashing and minimizing other characters to do so. Um, And that is one of the things I like the most about this episode in particular. I'm like, well, everybody got to shine. Everybody got to show what it is that they do best. And that didn't require belittling of the men. So I really like that. And uh, so I don't think it's 100% filler. I think it's maybe half filler. So maybe it's like, you know, a single cheeseburger with a Diet Coke. So <laughs> so uh, I did enjoy it. But like I said, I'll get to more stuff later. I don't think I'm being nitpicky on my dislike stuff. but We'll talk about that when I get there. Uh, But my general impression was, I I think it was fun and funny. And I think it raised a very important question about the extremes of light and dark, which will be my first question after the general comments. Um, So overall, I enjoyed it. But like I said, I'm going to get into stuff I would have changed. And also, let me let our listeners know, I am objective enough to know the difference between something is bad versus it's not the way I would have done it. So I'll always identify something I think is bad versus I just would have written it differently because that doesn't make anything bad at all just because I would have gone another way. Just want to throw that out there because sometimes, you know, I'm always quick to admit my bias, which is what I think all reviewers need to do. because when it comes to Batman, I'm totally biased. I love bad privilege. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's just to stop. <laughs> bad privilege. Yeah, that's right. So, Don't uh, even get me started it. on bad privilege, but yeah, let's continue. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Some people just uh, can't take it, but <laughs> I love it. Okay, so what? let me throw it out to my co-host, and we're going to get some general comments, and we're going to dive in. Uh, general comments about the episode start with Bracey. Yeah,
3: total filler episode without a doubt. Uh, You guys might feel a little bit different, but for me, this is all filler, uh, wrapped up around a plot device for one specific thing to happen, Uh, something that we knew was going to happen eventually in the series, and we finally get it here, and we'll get into this a little bit later. It involves Din Djarin and helmets, I shall say. Uh, But even with it being a filler episode, uh, it it didn't take away from the fact that I really enjoyed it. It remained fun. It was a, a nice... Little side quest adventure. Uh, like you said, we got uh, we got humor because we got Bill Burr back in, who is a fantastic comedian. Plus, his character of uh, Megs Mayfield is very interesting as well. And uh, and and we've got this whole uh, it's a caper episode, which is always fun. And uh, we've already discussed how uh, the Mandalorian works best in a group, you know, or at least uh, paired up. He uh, he he plays well off of others. So that made this episode particularly fun. We got to see a lot of our favorites come back. Of course, we get Boba Fett in the episode. We got Fennec. We've got Cara Dune. We've got Mayfield. It's just a whole lot of fun. Uh, I love the idea of the caper episode, even if we've got to have this sort of MacGuffin thing make it work. That's fine with me. It was a a good episode. Uh, Doesn't really advance the plot. It gives you a little bit of character arc, but at the same time, Uh, there are a lot of issues I have with it, and we'll get into that. When we get into DT's nitpicks, I'll give all my nitpicks.
0: Okay, cool. Go ahead, General Thoughts. Steve?
3: Yeah, I I thought it was solid. I mean,
2: I didn't think it was like the Ball sort of episode in the way that the finale is or the Ahsoka episode is or even lapse episode. But I thought it was perfectly good at generally what it did. Um, I kind of share a lot of your concerns, uh, particularly about the character of Mayfeld. Um, I, I was kind of ex- I, I will say that I was expecting him from the beginning uh, to to backstab Mando again, because that's what we saw from him before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say that that was probably my biggest issue is that he doesn't do that. Um, but I, I thought generally aside from that, um, it, it was perfectly entertaining. It is a little bit of a caper episode, but it's also a little bit of like, uh, something like the war wagon or like a stagecoach episode where, you know, you have these, uh, you, these guys staging a heist on a train and, mm-hmm. and, and, and so you have these, you know, train fights with, uh, the natives, you know, or convenient, uh, stand-ins for the natives and, and whatnot. Uh, it's just that you're dressing him up in Imperial, uh, you know, infiltration and that kind of thing. So it, it's a, it's partly a, like a war episode and it's partly like a caper episode and it's partly like a train heist episode. And in all of those and in, and it, but it comes together in a way that doesn't that doesn't feel like it's a it's a it's a welding together of these things. Um, it feels like it naturally connects in that respect. And, and this is one of the areas where uh filoni and favreau really do well they they take all of these different influences and they pull them together they make something nice and fun and 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 that and that's fine on that level it's perfectly okay um i just was i just kind of feel like okay they were trying you know to tell something different with uh mayfeld's character and i was like really um I'm, i'm still kind of left with questions about it but aside from that it was fine
0: cool cool go ahead nemesis
1: yeah, I, I think uh, <clears throat> Steve's point about the stagecoach of the train scene is very good because I was thinking that this episode really reminded me of like the very, very extended trailer for Mission Impossible 2827.
2: <laughs> There's a bit of that too, yeah.
1: So, okay, uh, yeah, that's what it felt like. Um, the other thing that really stuck out for me is that in different parts of this series... They have tried to give you that classic Kevin Smith clerks conversation, but elevate you know about you know the contractors who died on star on the Death Star and yeah. stuff like that. And, and now they're trying to give you, well, what are the rank and file people in the Empire? What are they about? What what did they go through? And the war weary stuff. And that's fine. And and I do want to hit on this in more detail. But I think they made a mistake in choosing Mayfield. Only because we've seen Mayfield twice. And so for us to to empathize with that character, we, we needed a whole lot more than what we're getting. So and I'll get into more detail of that, but I'm just gonna say, uh, in choosing to try and humanize Empire soldiers and what they went through and their, you know, for lack of a term, battle scars, mental battle scars, uh, interesting idea. I just don't think that, that execution was as good as it
0: could have been. Okay. Getting into the specifics. Um, I don't know if anybody else felt like Cara Dune coming to get him was like Colonel Troutman coming to get Rambo out of prison. I thought about that. <laughs> 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 yeah. And uh, one of the things I want you to notice, uh, something that they've done, maybe subtly, maybe not so subtly, but the impact is real. And we've been talking a lot both on and off uh, taping about the impact of Filoni and Favreau. I want you to notice that what they've done is they've ratcheted up some of these droids to be very sinister, Mm -hmm. very scary, very much something that you don't want to mess with. And whereas the actual first original trilogy made most of the droids really kind of funny I mean, we saw a little threat in Jabba's palace from the droid that was training the other droids, but that was still kind of funny. But -hmm. these droids on the Mandalorian, man, from season one have been incredible. There there was
1: the interrogation Mm -hmm. droid. That was the only one that was really sinister for me.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. But all of the droids we've seen on this show have gotten us away from just kind of like the cuteness Mm of R2, quirkiness of 3PO or anything else. Uh, and gotten us way more into real combatants, real threats, real targets on the field. I mean, just incredible stuff. And that, that I think is to their favor. And it's one of the things of this show I've enjoyed in, incredibly. And that's what I liked about that opening scene that Mayfield knew he had to move because you're, it's like a Terminator. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. You have to comply or you're going to get hurt. I really like that, but I've liked all the droids on the show. But I really like that because it just makes it seem more real when you're when you're being reassigned.
3: It's funny. So, I kind of I was going to bring that up later myself because i watching that. I was thinking like, you know, why is why is the new Republic using so many droids? And I started thinking about like what you said. They've really amped up the droids, and not just the types of droids, but like the really, really combat functional droids everything from the uh, the prison ship to those garden here and you know we got the dark troopers and it makes me wonder in Filoni and Favreau's mind what direction the uh, what direction the republic's going to take because Bill Burr will actually go into this thing that the republic and the empire are really just the same thing when you get right down to it to the average person in the empire
0: true very true so uh, I like that. I like, you know, Cara Dune again showing up. I like her new role. I like there being some real stakes. But what I found hokey was <clears throat> kind of every journey of Mando is plot specific. So hmm. what they're trying to do now is they're trying to get to a remote Imperial base that is the only place they can access Groku's, uh, Groku's location. And the base is refining Rhydonium, and that's a super volatile element, and it's on a jungle planet named Morak. So, you know, Star Wars, man, it's all cities, all freezing, all sand, or all jungle. But anyway, so (laughs) I just thought that was kind of contrived that, you know, if you think about every other episode this season, there's been some type of issue. But now that they need to get Grogu, it's no issue. We're just go get Mayfield. we will go to this remote planet. You know, I'm like, oh, OK. But, you know, maybe I can let that one slide. So let me hear your thoughts about just the setup, just about getting Mayfield and Kara going to get him in the droid stuff. And just, you know, the premise of the episode that we've got to go to, you know, planet hokey poke and uh, do what we need to do. There's no problem getting there. Not this time. You know, so what do you think about that? Start with Nemesis
1: yeah i think for me uh the setup the biggest thing that i took out of it i wanted to talk about uh does kind of go to mayfield's point is that the average citizen the empire the republic they're just the same when the republic overthrows the empire they're not gonna uh, reinvent the wheel so they're taking over institutions that already exist one of those is uh, probably these these penal institutions so I think it's very feasible that these droids used to work for the Empire, and now they work for the Republic, and it's just mm. a change in name. But the whole system is still the place because, you know, to actually rebuild everything from the ground up would take forever. And I thought that was very interesting, and that is what I really took out of that first scene.
0: That's and an I excellent point. That. Mm. that really is a great point. That's a great point that it would be uh, cost inefficient and time inefficient to try to try to reconstruct everything from the ground up so they're just moving in on resources. Really, really great point. Go um, ahead, Steve. Were you done, yeah. says Nemesis? N- Nemesis, are you done? Yeah, yeah, I'm done.
2: Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. Sorry, Then I'll go ahead. Um, So, yeah, I have a couple of things. I I think that a lot of that idea of the Republic and the Empire not being that different, that really makes sense. And it actually kind of builds on uh, one of my favorite games, uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2. And one of the things uh, that they really made the point on is that the war absolutely destroys life on the ground for the people living there. And they don't care uh, about the differences between the Jedi and the Sith, because to them, they're the same and they cause the same amount of destruction. And I think that uh, the same thing is true of the Republic and the Empire in their minds. Uh, to them, it's just, you know, this is the government, you know, rolling over on us and causing life, you know, uh, misery for everybody on the ground with their wars. And, and they just don't care. Um, you know, so I think there, there there is definitely an element of that that's true and that's recurring. And it might be that they even consciously took that element um, from uh, KOTOR, too. Uh, for all I know, um, as far as the setup goes, I, I think it's perfectly fine. Um, I, I do get your point about Colonel Troutman, but I was thinking like Lee Marvin in The Dirty Dozen, <laughs>
1: like
2: like Lee Marvin going down and getting all these guys. Yeah, I need you for a mission. I need you for the mission. I need you for the mission. You're going to be my dirty dozen. Um, so there was a little bit of uh, of that as well for me, um, and it's fine. I think I think uh, Cara Dune, uh definitely uh, kind of fits that role quite well. Uh, I like seeing her playing the marshal. I feel like like she's being given more to do and and more of a role and we're seeing more sides of her. And and I think that that's really great. Um, I actually like her character. Um, As far as the droids go, um, I would add one thing to that. And that is the idea that um, they, 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 the, the new Republic really is overextended and you can tell that they just are uh, trying to take over this massive bureaucracy and they just don't have enough people. Um, I, I really get the feeling that they're using the droids because, well, they're there um, they're not a, a drain on manpower. And all you have to do is reprogram them uh, in certain respects, and there you go. So I think a lot of it is the um, institutional drawbacks of all of that. Um, but in terms of the setup in, in, in general, I thought it was perfectly okay. And it did what it needed to do.
0: It did what it needed to do. Very, very true. Go ahead, Bracey. Yeah, there's a. Uh
3: you know, Nemesis has really got me thinking about this ever since he mentioned them uh, just moving in and taking over all that stuff, and that makes perfect sense. And it got me thinking about how uh, earlier today I was watching a video on how uh, Topher Grace did this uh, trailer edit uh, for all nine films. And uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant editing job where, like, uh, there's a scene of, like, Luke meeting uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and you're somebody like, oh, you know, the Jedi used to be these peacekeepers. Then before the dark times, then it flashes to clone troopers, then stormtroopers. And so, you know, back in the day, uh, the New Republic doesn't have Jedi. Uh, Jedi are the very best. A scattered few across the galaxy. They don't have. Uh, they don't have these ambassadors slash warriors to rely on anymore. These these few people with special powers. You know, if they number a few thousand you could run out, keep the peace, and you know, uh, they were enough because there are tributes and abilities. So now the the new republic is forced to use uh, manpower and apparently droid power to maintain the peace. And like, that's wow! You've like really, really opened my eyes to a whole new uh, a whole new strata of this that I hadn't considered before, Nemesis. So that's pretty amazing, right there. I love this whole idea. The uh, the setup for this thing, I. I've already just told you guys before. I don't mind going from planet to planet. I, I like seeing the new worlds. I like seeing uh, all the expanded galaxy. I want to see more all the time because I love that whole world building thing. But for me, this episode was uh, you know, part of the reasons that it became like very, very much filler is because it's all about having to go to this one terminal on this one planet just so we can do this one thing. So it's it's all very you know it's it, it's all very uh, uh oh what's word I'm looking? yes thank you it's all very plot driven it it all has to you know it, it's all it, it feels like it was written and thank god they can still make it enjoyable uh but that's just one of the nitpicks i have about it is like uh this could have been better in a lot of ways uh but like you guys i i, I got the uh i got the dirty dozen feel too when like uh when Cara just come marching in there and she's like oh come on with me he's like hey but where are we going you're hey it's, it's courtesy it's courtesy. I don't care. Come with me. It's either it's either this place or no place, buddy. Let's go. I love that. <laughs> oh, and I loved uh, I love uh, Mayfield's reaction to seeing Boba Fett come down uh, the ramp from Slave One. And that yeah. that looks like, oh, 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 I thought you were somebody else. And then uh Oh, here comes Denjarin. <laughs> oh, it is you. Did you come to kill me? Oh, and as a super Boba Fett side geek, notice thing uh, now that Boba's got his newly repainted armor. Uh, you'll notice there's a few interesting things missing. He's no longer carrying the Wookiee scalps or his cape. Now, those could have been lost in the Sarlacc, although a lot of his other gear obviously survived. And the, the red bands, the red stripes that are uh, up on the side, the left side of his helmet, in the older films, they used to be gold. And apparently, according to a lore, that used to stand for vengeance. And now the Red Bands, just for all you super geeks out there, stand for Honoring One's Father.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
3: So Bo was taking a new path.
0: Right, right, but a significant one, like Mm -hmm. we talked about about last episode. That's very, very significant. Another reason to get a whole new look. (laughs) Once again, you know, the Mandalorians, as a group of people, are people of code. Mm -hmm. That's why we like even though their code is not the same, whatever it is that they adhere to and believe in, they have a strong streak of honor. They have a strong streak of honoring their word, honoring the deal, uh, finishing the job, and protecting what they agree to protect. And you can't help but respect that, even if you don't agree with all their choices. But that's just the strength of code. And that's what I think makes them so interesting. And that's why, like we talked about last episode, by expanding on Boba Fett and finally letting us see more to him and what he's about and what he believes, makes him infinitely more interesting. Okay, so so the gang has to go to uh, take over a transport vehicle, and then they got to sneak inside. So obviously Mayfield has to go to work on getting the location of Grogu, and then they have to figure out who else is going. And so... That leads to Mando going because they know Kara and they know Finnick. And um, they, uh, when Boba Fett makes a comment, it's talking about what I was talking about last pod. He said, let's just say they might recognize my face. See, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. So they know on some level, some type of history, some type of something. They know that's a Django Fett clone and that's who Boba is. And they know that. When they saw that, that's what I mean when I say it's got to be around somewhere. Got to be some other people in the galaxy that recognize that that there are other Boba clones or whatever. So Boba himself nods to that. So now Mando has to go in. And this is where things get tricky for me. This is one of the, the parts of the episode that I just really had to struggle with. And that's that they put Mando in a situation where he has to to get past the guards, Mando has to take off his helmet because they have to do a retina scan. Cannot scan through his helmet. And uh, so security activates and they're down to seconds where they either have to, uh, you know, confirm who they are or get, you know, blastered out of oblivion. So Mando makes a decision to snatch off his helmet, letting them scan the retina and the fake IDs and whatever, because Grogu is that important to him. Now, I get that they're trying to demonstrate the lengths to which Mando will go for his kid, because notice now, they no longer call him the child. They call him Mando's child. Notice that. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't like was they seem to have forgetting They've already proven the whole premise of the show is that Mando fell in love with Grogu and turned his back on the life that he knew to protect the child. So I think that this type of helmet reveal was absolutely unnecessary, and it just diminished a little bit of the mystery or the the whole point of the code to me. Even though I get why they did it, I just don't agree that it was necessary in the story. And you know what I really didn't like was him talking to Mayfield with his helmet off, kind of casually, because what I would want to see with uh Dijon with his helmet off is someone that is always nervous someone that feels the pangs of conscience someone that is keeping his head on the swivel because he doesn't want to be recognized someone that feels naked someone that feels vulnerable and exposed yes someone that even like a child knows i'm doing something i'm not supposed to be doing because no one communicates that feelings like kids When you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, it radiates off of you when you're a child. And that was what I would want to see if we're going to do a situation like this. I didn't like it. I didn't agree with it. I don't think it was necessary story-wise at all. But if we're going to do it, there needs to be some immediate mental and emotional dissonance and perhaps consequences because you have built this up in this character for two seasons now. And we saw him take his helmet off at the end of last season because he was hurt. So it was either take your helmet off or die. So, okay. But, you know, so uh, again, I understand it. I just don't agree with it. So I want to hear your thoughts about that, about uh, Mandel making this kind of decision and his reaction to it and what it means. And, you know, what do you think about that? Start with Nemesis.
1: Uh, wow. Wow. I'm of two minds of it. I definitely see your point, and I actually lean your direction. I think that uh, it illustrates to me that Din Djarin, whatever, however you want to judge him, has abandoned his the code that he originally followed in order to... because of the child, because of Grogu. Mm -hmm. Uh, you could say that he is following... I mean, you could argue, if you want to play semantic games, that he is following the code because he was originally tasked to do what he could to get Grogu to the Jedi and everything. But, you know, like you said, you're playing games there. You're playing philosophical games. You're playing a bunch of different games. And I do think that it would take a much more of a toll emotionally... On Djarin himself, because he has been committed to this code this whole time, and we are going to see in this episode, and then we are going to see in the next episode that that code for me, he is no longer a follower of that particular code. Does that make him not a Mandalorian? Yeah. No, it does not. That is, I think is one of the most important things that we talked about in the previous uh, episode, you know, about the previous episode is that. Being a Mandalorian can mean a number of different things. As far as I'm concerned, Din Djarin is no longer a member of that religious cult. He is well on his way to either joining the ranks of to joining the ranks of you know the Boba Fett types, and possibly becoming uh, you know an ally of the secular uh, type you know ethnic Mandalorians led by Bocatan. But that's what I really took out of that scene. And I think it's a very powerful moment. And I do agree with you that they could have done a little bit more to hype that up. I don't necessarily disagree with, you know, he was put in a position where I think they kind of had to do it. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to take that away from him, milk that for all it's worth, because it deserves to be milked. Uh,
0: and I agree with you completely. This moves him clearly into either Paladin territory, where he's a hired gun enforcing somebody else's morality, which is what the Manhunters and the Green Lanterns are, or mm-hmm. it moves them into Ronin territory, which you are master the samurai. You're just out there living by your own code, kind of making that up as you go. So that's what I'm thinking. It's such a significant moment. I just think in the wrong direction. Uh, go ahead, Bracey.
3: Yeah, I have to agree with both of you on that. I understand why the scene was set up, because I agree with Nemesis. This shows that he has truly become a father. Uh, He's abandoning everything for his child, as any good parent would do. You know, whatever it takes to uh, protect uh, your child, their safety and their well-being. But I also agree with DT that uh, this is something he's been living with, uh, I don't know, Pedro Pascal's age, but let's say... Let's say uh, early on 20 years and upwards of 30 years, he's been living this life, never exposing his face to another living soul. And he really should have been expressing all sorts of anxiety and uh, just, you know, a level of of fear and hypervigilance and vulnerability for sure. And I was expecting that. And then I didn't like the setup that Bill Burr sees. Uh, uh, Mayfield sees a character that's like oh god you know that guy used to be my commanding officer I can't let him see me he's like you know you're one of probably hundreds of thousands of uh, soldiers that he's dealt with you know what are the odds it 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 was just too plot convenient that he just refused to go in there Uh, somebody who had actually was an imperial who's probably still in the registry but then Din Djarin goes over there takes off his helmet and it scans him and it doesn't like hey i don't know who you are alert alert intruder why doesn't anything like that happen what kind of security scans uh, a nobody's face and does like you're not in the registry pal yeah uh, the whole setup for it uh even even mayfield's explanation like oh commander you know, he's his 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 ship depressurized you know popped his eardrums he you gotta speak up really loud but then he he starts answering questions here and there so, like you can tell he's I guess you're supposed to assume he's reading lips or taking cues off of Mayfield. But for me, unfortunately it, it made the scene clunky. Um, uh, yeah, I, it, it should have, I understand what they're trying to do. I think it was necessary to do it. I just don't think this was the right way to do it. I actually found, uh, Bill Burr's part later in the scene where he's, uh, giving you the other side of being a, a member of the empire, more interesting than, uh, than this whole thing. Yeah, we're going to hit
0: on that in a minute. Go ahead, Steve.
2: Yeah, I, and to build on what uh, Jeff was saying, I, I really think so much of this episode was contrived plot-wise, and mm-hmm. I think this is kind of what made this whole thing weak. Um, you know, there, there's the contrivance of, oh, yeah, you're the only one that, that the system doesn't recognize because they've seen everybody else's faces. Really? You expect me to believe that they've seen all these people? You're expecting me to believe that Boba can go in and play as being an Imperial clone that was in the service? I'm sure there were still some mm-hmm. of them. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to tell me that uh, this this officer just happened to sit over there, so suddenly, like – yeah, Mando, uh, get over here and, you know, answer my questions and that he doesn't suspect at all uh, when uh, the other guy starts answering all the questions for him when Mayfeld does all the lines. I'm like, really? So you, you got to kind of wonder that something's up there and there's nothing suspicious. Everything seems so contrived to get where they need to go. And and this is kind of one of the, 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 the real annoying things about the episode, because, you know, it, the, the, the setup is not a bad thing. I get what they're trying to do it uh, as well. Um, they're, they're trying to see just exactly how far uh, Den is willing to go for his kid. Like, what sacrifices is he willing to make uh, to get his son back? And, you know, obviously the answer is whatever it takes. I mean, we know this. Um, but I mean, I can understand wanting to make him choose between his code and his child. Um, the problem is, is that we've been seeing this for two seasons now. And I think that his opinions on that are, are pretty well established. I mean, yeah, he's going to do whatever it takes to save his little Muppet son, because that's, that's his Mando.
0: You know, that's what he does. <laughs> right. right. So, so,
2: yeah, I mean, it's like I, I can understand it in, in terms of what they think needs, but it feels so creaky. It feels so clunky. I mean, there are so many things that feel like it's contrived. Uh, and convenient just to get them from point A to point B. Um, Does it get there? Yes. Is this the best way that they could have done this? No, not really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, now we're going to tie into two different things. We're going to tie Mayfield's dialogue uh, that he had with Mando along the way, and then we're going to tie in the dialogue that they have when they're sitting down at the table, with uh, Vela and Hess, and when they're talking about the uh, soldiers that were easily sacrificed by Hess, which is what set Mayfield sets Mayfield off. So Mayfield goes, <clears throat> if you were born on Mandalore, you believe one thing. If you were born on Alderaan, you believe something else. And then, <clears throat> obviously, both of those planets are now gone. They've been overrun and or destroyed and or overturned. Okay, and then Mayfield always goes. Everybody's got their lines; they don't cross until things get messy. That's foreshadowing. We know what that is. Writers' code. That's foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. That's a setup uh, for what's coming later. And what's coming later is uh, after Mando and Mayfield sit down, Valen has uh, all of a sudden wants to have a drink and reminisce on good times and wants to talk about you know basically the Empire's philosophy that you know for the greater good, sacrifices have to be made, but he's one of those people who hides his sadistic streak behind something like the Empire. Mm-hmm. Like, you would have been a serial killer anyway, just mm-hmm. properly gave you something to throw in with so you could kill people for a cause, but you would have enjoyed the shedding of blood, you know, on its own. So what I want to throw out to you guys is what is the morality plague on here? Because after that, that's when Mayfield goes off and just decides to shoot them and they have to shoot their way out, which was kind of fun, but kind of hokey as well. And also just touching on the last thing we talked about, Mando's face is now in the system. That's another thing that bothered me greatly. If you understand anything about any type of system, they've recorded his 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 face and all that stuff now. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that, I, you know, he should have been just fighting that tooth and nail. But anyway... So, but I want to talk about the morality suggested here, and here's the reason why. Uh, one of the things, I hate to bring up The Last Jedi, but one of the things that people talked about with The Last Jedi is they talked about that the boundaries of right and wrong aren't always so black and white, that they aren't always so light side or dark side. And obviously we know in lore there's something called gray Jedi. That use the force but don't subscribe to either Jedi or Sith code. And so that's kind of what's on display here, and that is that, yeah, you can have code and yeah, you can have principles, but do you need to bend them when the sacrifice requires it to, or if the sacrifice is necessary, or if you think it is. And what about those people who just enjoy killing and a war is just an excuse? And the Empire is just an excuse. So there's a lot of moral lines being thrown around here. And I want to hear you guys take on it because all of a sudden Mayfield snaps when he sees just how much Hess uh, is callous about sacrificing uh, sacrificing those other lives. And, you know, Mayfield, his own code kind of wakes up and he's like, you know, I thought we were fighting for something but for you to talk about my fellow soldiers. You know, two of you guys have been in the military. So for you to talk about my brothers in arms, like their lives didn't mean anything, it was enough to set, you know, Mayfield off. So. so let me hear what you think about the whole morality of this. Is code to be adhered to under all circumstances or does it need to be flexible? And what do you think about, you know, what Mayfield's saying about how war doesn't matter if everybody's dead? what you believe don't matter if your planet got blown up. So let me hear what you think about that. Start with Nemesis.
1: Yeah, this goes to, you know, kind of what I was talking about when we first opened this this segment. Um I think that what they're trying to do is interesting. However, in order for us to empathize with a character like Mayfeld and understand the damage that may or may not have been done to him. He may have been a psychopath or a sociopath when he entered the military. We, we don't know that. We don't know much about him at all. We only know what we saw from that one other episode he was in and what we saw in this episode. But in order to establish that and empathize with him and empathize with his journey and understand that this war has damaged him in ways and led him to become the person he is and then understand this greater message that they're trying to send about warfare and about uh the common soldier you know the kind of stuff that you saw in in novels like all quiet on the western front stuff like that um you need much more character building you need to see the actual damage you know the actual scenes the emotional damage being inflicted on him or at least hearing him describe it over a period of time that we can digest so that we can come to identify with the character and put ourselves in their place to empathize with them so that we can understand the decisions they made. Because then, you know, we're getting this, you know, we, we, we got like the shotgun blast version of this whole narrative. And it's one that I've read a number of times and I don't have a problem with it. Um, there are, you know, it's a deep philosophical discussion. I could go on at length about it. And and I don't want to take up all of our podcast, you know, geeky <laughs> podcast time about that philosophical discussion but it's an interesting one but if you're gonna go into something that in-depth I think it needed a much better setup it might have needed a different actor playing the character because bill Burrs snarky uh comedian approach to it I, I think he pulled it off fairly well but it, it's hard you know it would be like Deadpool coming off as that kind of character or Ryan Reynolds you know it's kind of like uh, okay, I need to see some real emotional vulnerability from you to get past the, the sarcastic side and the, the comedic side but uh, so I, I like the concept, I like the idea, but I think this is a much deeper discussion and I think that uh, the way they did it and the way they kind of just shotgun blasted it into this, into really one episode because we got no hint of this and the previous appearance at Mayfield just didn't work. And I think that um, I think that that is a I'm not going to say it's a negative. I'm just going to say that it didn't work for me. It's like, okay, I see what you're trying to do, but I don't think you executed it well. Yeah. Yeah. I follow what you're saying.
0: Follow what you're saying. Uh, Go ahead, Steve.
2: Yeah, I, I have pretty much have a similar position. I mean, I don't have the military experience that uh, Nemesis or Jeff do, but yeah, I've been around people who have been in there. I mean, I, uh-huh. I have military family members, so I I get what you guys are saying, uh, especially when you're talking uh-huh. about like uh, brotherhood and, and, and all of these sorts of things. Um, when it comes to this, though, I just feel like Mayfeld was the ba- a bad character to do it with. Uh, because the last time we saw him, he was stabbing Mando in the back. So to say that, you know, this guy suddenly cares about honor and all these other things is, to me, a little bit of a stretch. Um, that that having been said, if they had done it with a different character, uh, you know, some other random uh, ex-stormtrooper, I think it would have been executed better. Um, somebody who wasn't Bill Burr, uh, I agree with Nemesis on that. You know, somebody who could have pulled that off would have been fine. Um, now, and, and really, Star Wars itself has handled these kinds of issues much better. Um, we, we've seen like in the Clone Wars where they did basically a version of Apocalypse Now, um, where you had uh, Captain Rex kind of being sort of the voice of reason, saying, look at what we're doing to this planet. And then you had uh, this uh, fallen Jedi that, you know, presenting who isn't aware that it's fallen, um, who uh, is basically playing the General Ripper type, you know, the, the, the Kurtzman, the Kurtz character. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, that one. So we've we've seen that even there, Star Wars has done this kind of stuff. uh, And even and Filoni wasn't even involved with that. So um, I don't mind dealing with these sorts of themes. I think they're perfectly uh, reasonable to work with in in the cost of Star Wars. Um, But it's just like, I just feel like this character and the execution of this didn't work, and then Mayfell just suddenly going off on the guy, um, even though it would expose everybody, and he should have been smarter than to do that. Um, I just feel like it just just didn't come across right, and the way that they did it, um, no, I'm not really a fan of that. And I love stuff like Born, Punisher Born, which has done this kind of stuff much, much better.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. It's definitely definitely your argument is well put about how it's the wrong character and it's the wrong type of character change in a moment because it's such a, uh, something we haven't seen, which leads back to Nemesis point about how we would need more buildup to accept this from you and to be able to resonate with it emotionally. Uh, go ahead, Jeff.
3: I cannot disagree
0: with what's been said,
3: uh, objectively from a, a writing perspective. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Like you guys have said, we haven't seen anything that really builds to this. But at the same time, I still very much like this scene. And I even like the character of Mayfield and Bill Burr in it. And uh, here's why. Uh, I'm, I'm clearly biased on this. One, from having been a soldier. And two, because I really like Bill Burr as a, as an actor and comedian. Uh, there's there's a lot to identify there with him. Uh, just his, his old uh, idea in general, because I, I don't just watch his comedy, I also listen to his podcast so I'm clearly biased in that way. Uh, but he actually impressed me uh, with his uh, appearances here in The Mandalorian. Uh, I've enjoyed him more as an actor here, because uh, yeah, he's, he's snarky and all that, but he's actually uh, I think doing some pretty good acting. He's not just trying to be the funny guy. And uh, I like this scene a lot, Because I think Mayfield is still that mercenary. He's just, like Boba Fett said, he's trying to find his place in the universe, basically. I think that's what he's trying to do, trying to make the best out of whatever situation he's got at the moment. And I had to wonder when this scene is playing out, if if he left the Empire before the Empire died, if this was the inciting event. Uh, Because all of a sudden, seeing this guy apparently brought back a lot of trauma. And I have to wonder if maybe he defected from the Empire, went out to the Outer Rim where, you know, they didn't care. He wasn't really going to be found and became a mercenary at that point. And I think this stirred up a lot of him because he's clearly very deeply wounded by this to the point where he even loses his normal mercenary professionalism and cool and blows the whole charade in order to uh, get his vengeance on this guy who can't even remember one of his elite soldiers when he's sitting across the table from him. I thought I found that very intriguing. So I think, you know, sometimes you'll see a movie and there's the, the fact when like a revenge film and somebody like will, uh, will attack him. is like, you know, don't you remember what you did? And it's like, no, nah, you know, I've heard dozens and dozens of people. Like you're just one more. And it, all right, I'll, I'll blow you away, but I'm not going to get the satisfaction that I was hoping to. So for him, it became less a moment of catharsis, and it was just kind of a just kind of an empty revenge. It, it becomes more for like uh, just his own pain and not not getting this guy to pay for his crimes. As for the the idea of the uh, the idea of the empire here, uh, there's a line, uh, there's a scene in the previous uh, in the original Star Wars uh, that didn't make it into the film where Luke is talking to his best friend. Uh, Biggs Darklighter, and he's talking about how he's going to leave and join the Rebellion, because like Luke, he's a really good pilot. And he says, I'm not waiting for the Empire to enlist me. I'm going to go join the Rebellion now. So this lets you know something else very important. the People didn't just enlist in the Empire. Sometimes the Empire was conscripting people. Mm -hmm. And later on, if we go with the the sequels, they're just flat out stealing babies. So uh, we don't know anything about Mayfield's background. So we can suppose that like the Empire here is like, oh, this guy's a really good shot. Well, that's great. He'll make a great sniper or a great scout or some sort of uh, you know forward shock troop. Let's snatch him up and put him to work. You know, Not everybody was like Han Solo like uh, taking off for the Empire just because he wanted to fly or he wanted to get off the little mudball planet that he was on. Uh, not everybody was looking for a career in the Empire. So I think that's another reason why this scene has an impact for me, even though, This is something I've built up internally myself because I have no evidence, which is what does make the scene a bad scene. But it was still enjoyable for me. As for the philosophical idea, uh, you know, how far will you go being a soldier? I know like we you do have this brotherhood once you've completed your basic training. You you going through all this stress and uh, this hardship with people will draw you closer to folks uh closer sometimes even to them to members of your family to the point where you're willing to protect people with your life because you have to rely on each other in that way. And so like Bill said, you know, it it sounds like maybe he wasn't conscripted. He's like or or, or when he was in there he had to get into the idea of like oh, you know, I thought we were fighting for something greater. Maybe that was the only way he could get through being a part of the empire. And there's this uh there was this movie uh, put out by a guy named uh, Sandy Cholera, uh, who's best known for creating the, the amazing short film Batman Dead End. Uh, this was a feature-length film called Hunter Prey, in which uh, which you find out that the human race uh, has been exterminated because they chose to take sides in a galactic war. And uh, the, the winning alien species wiped out this this other species, and they wiped out the humans, too. And even though it even though it cost them everything, you know, here's the very last human existence. You know, they're 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 having this philosophical discussion while they're trying to kill each other. And the humans like, yeah, you know, it it cost us everything, but it was still worth it. But you was it worth the extinction of the species. And you got to ask yourself a similar question if you're dealing with the empire. Is it worth it?
0: Absolutely. And the thing about this kind of thing is going back to what Steve said about him, you know, somewhat turning on a dime. The other thing that jumped out at me was, doesn't he realize this jeopardizes the whole mission? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, once again, as you guys have talked about your military experience and your training, there's a way you're trained to react. Mm -hmm. And you you can't unlearn that. So I'm saying to myself, don't you have enough? you know, uh, uh, strategy and, and tactical assessment training to realize that this could blow the whole thing wide open, that all this could be for nothing when you respond like that, when you basically turned it into like a bar fight. It was an infiltration mission and you turned it into a brawl. Now, maybe that was the only way they were going to get out. I don't know. Maybe they could have just walked out if he had let it go. I don't know. But I'm saying it just felt very odd to me that you would choose to fight your way out like that. Normally heroes that do that are heroes that have an advantage or heroes that are used to fighting 20 people at a time, that kind of thing. But this was just kind of spur of the moment. And the whole thing could have gone south so quickly. It would have all been for nothing. So I don't know. So, um, I want to get to my nitpicky point. I don't know if it's nitpicky or not, but I do want to talk about it before we wrap up. And then, um, because the action sequences in this episode are really, really good, and maybe we'll have time to talk about that later, maybe not. But I do want to talk about this point, and here it is. <clears throat> I think this was such a waste of a great character because his villain team was the best villain team we've seen on this show. Mm-hmm. Our Clancy Brown, with, you know, the big, you know, red horn dude, and uh, I forgot their names, but you know what I'm talking about, when they were yeah. in the episode of the prisoner, I thought that this season was going to be about them escaping and hunting Mando. Mm-hmm. I thought that they were going to be mortal enemies, and we were going to see more of them coming in and trying to mess Mando up, because he really messed him up. The, the last time we saw them, you know, on that barge on them, ready to get captured and all that, he jacked them all up. I was sure that when they came back, it was going to be pure revenge. And they had been sitting around thinking about it, plotting it or whatever. And now to do this whole redemption arc, because at the end, Mayfeld, you know, takes the gun and once again, with one shot, destroys, you know, the command center. And, you know, and then that somehow redeems him enough in the eyes of Cara Dune to where she basically lets him go and says, we're going to go with the story that He died in this battle. And he says, You know, Mandal never saw your face. And then I'm saying to myself, Why would you leave him on a planet where everybody saw his face and he just blew everything up? (laughs) You know, I said, How? You know, helping him. I thought they would at least take him to another planet. But I'm like, No, you just left him in a place where all the Imperial forces saw him and they saw him start that fight. And Mandal's in the system. And they saw them blow up the command center, so... Well, to be fair, all those people are blown up now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. But, you know, there's always going to be stragglers. But I guess what I'm saying is, I really thought this was a waste of a great villain and a great villain team. This was not the way I would have done it. That's what I'm saying. It's not wrong or bad. I just would have taken advantage of that great chemistry that the crew had, and they would have been recurring villains. Mm-hmm have shown up at the worst time possible in every season. Like here they come because they're obsessed now with getting their revenge and they're going to screw Mando if it's the last thing that they do. That's where I would have gone with this. And that's why I just don't agree with every single villain needing a redemption arc. Some people can stay bad and evil. It's okay. You know, that's the way the world works. Some people are unrepentant to the end. But I just really did not like how all of a sudden now he's like Steve said, all of a sudden he's got cold And like you guys said about, you know, it's a deep moral discussion when you're dealing with your brothers in arms and what that means to you. And he's just kind of, eh, I just really didn't like this turn of events. So let me hear your thoughts about that, about, you know, redeeming him and no longer having the villain, at least so far, at least not this season, having, you know, the villains come back and all that. What'd you think about all that? Start with Jeff. I'll
3: tell you, man, like, uh, I, I was like you. I was wanting him and his crew to come back gunning for Mando because they are such a fun crew, such a fun fun crew of villains. They they are like the anti Star Wars crew, you know, where you got Han and you know Chewie and Leia and all that. That you know they basically got the opposite of that. This little villain crew. I love these guys. You know, you got your uh, I, I forget the name of the big devil looking race that's immune to fire. You know, they, they they got their strong guy. They got their evil droid. They get their their snarky female. You know, of course, you got. Uh, uh, you know, Mayfield is like the Han Solo kind of thing. You know, this this is such a cool crew. So I'm hoping that Mayfield will go back to his mercenary ways, and uh, and spring his buddies because, you know, what else is he going to do? He's a wanted criminal in the universe. If he ever gets scanned for any reason, how else is he going to make his living? Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping his redemption was just. A redemption against the Empire, but not against the nature that he's had for uh, for what's been going on for decades. Because I do want to see that crew back together. Uh, they were all so good. Um, they are perfect foils uh, to run up against uh, uh, Mando and any of his uh, companions they might have. Because even though Mando did manage to take them all out one-on-one, I feel like this crew is pretty much the the equal of a lot of the good guy crews that we've seen uh, throughout the series. So I'm hoping for that. Some of my personal nitpicks uh, with this uh, episode, we've discussed with the uh, uh, the important turnaround scene in the middle and the scanner. Uh, another thing that bothered me, because this thing is just so driven by plot convenience, even though I, I enjoyed it on a surface level, uh, things kept digging at me. When the, when the wagon train gets attacked by the Indians, if you will, uh, the first thing I th- started thinking is like, why do Star Wars? Uh, why, do, why are there any wheeled vehicles in Star Wars? I thought everything floated on suspensor fields. But okay, I'll let that now let that slide. But then here come the uh, the natives riding in on their little skimmers, and uh, you know they're all armed with spears and thermal <laughs> detonators. Spears <laughs> and thermal detonators. There's not one blaster amongst. Uh, let's see, they had a. Uh, they blew up about three skiffs, and then there were like four more. So at least seven skiffs, and nobody, none of them, has a blaster. And I, I guess if the Empire is hanging on to this, they're not going to let blasters out. But come on, man, there's there's always a black market. Somebody If you guys have been raiding the Empire, you, you've you managed to take a few uh, soldiers down and steal their weapons. Nobody's got any weapons. I don't get that. So it's very convenient, once again, for like you know, Din Djarin to hop out with his pistol. Oh, crap, my pistol conveniently broke or ran out of ammo which we've never seen happen in star wars so now i gotta fight all these guys hand to hand it's an exciting fight the fights are always well staged but the whole time i'm going like ah no this this doesn't work i mean I'm, i'm into it but at the same time it's just way too convenient so that's just something else i wanted to throw out about like my nitpicks for the episode
2: cool cool go ahead steve
3: yeah, I, I think uh,
2: everybody, and frankly, uh, um, Jeff just really went into pretty much most of my depicts. Um, so I think I'm going to kind of ke- stick it to uh, Mayfeld mainly.
3: That's um, what you my- get for stealing a Dana Lee and Asanto from me. <laughs> yes, karma, <laughs> karma comes back all the time. <laughs> That's
2: fine. Um, no, I think the thing with Mayfeld is, is that you can have a villain – Uh, without, you know, making him a redemption character all the time. You Mm -hmm. know, you can keep him a villain and still have him on the side of the heroes. You just have to keep him consistent and and have them have a reason to help you. Um, And it may be a situation where, okay, I hate this Empire more than I hate Mando. That could be plausible if it had been better executed than this. Uh, hopefully that is the case and we start getting him going back to his wily scheming ways because I did really like uh, him uh, with the other mercs. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan of Clancy Brown. So playing mm-hmm. watching him play that big Devaronian was really, really cool. So I would like to see him especially come back. Um, but really be, beyond that, it's just like, You know, Dave Filoni uh, has in the past, you know, redeemed villains or and and um, and in ways that are better than this. um, And I'm thinking mainly of Agent Callus on Rebels. Uh, He was a guy who was there for like all four seasons and he was the villain, main villain of season one. And it was gradual over the course of three seasons where he becomes an ally of the Rebellion and turns on Thrawn. Um, and that was just really so well done. And and this just felt in contrast like it was just a turn on a dime because they needed him to do this thing. Um, and the the last bit in the end, I, now that I think about it, it kind of reminded a little bit of Han shooting Greedo. And I think they were trying to aim towards that surprise turn uh, in the same way and have that kind of badass uh, sort of scene where he, where he turns against this. And, and, and it really uh, kind of works and makes you root for the character. Um, but I just don't think it worked, uh, just because he has been such a douchebag before, um, and and it just none of it really feels like it makes sense, and and everything feels contrived. That's the biggest problem of this episode. All the points feel contrived, and while there there are entertaining enough sequences where I, I can forgive that, um, it's not a terrible episode. It's just one where the joints are very obvious, and the and the and it's just very clear where they're kind of going with it. Um, and they're trying to use this to kind of shake it up, uh, the, the scene of Mayfeld sh- uh, shooting the captain. Um, all of this just, just does not work in terms of the execution, and they really should have handled it better than they did.
0: Go ahead, Nemesis. All right, Steve
1: stole my point. So, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I keep uh, doing that. Sorry, guys. No, it's all right. All uh, right. Just means that you are a brilliant guy who is uh, picking up on astounding, intelligent points from very good-looking people. So, um, <laughs> no, I, I will expand He, he kind of hit hit around my point, which was that um, I think that what they did with Mayfeld was a step too far. So they gave us the cannon, you know, the the shotgun blast of all of this. Uh, information about his you know war experiences and he shoots the guy in the face and then you know he's on the side of the angels and then he's going to walk away and presumably he's going to go become an altar boy somewhere on a, a cathedral planet or something so you know i think and this is um i don't know i think this is kind of between dt's two points where it's not the way I would have written it, and it's bad. I think it's somewhere in between the two. I think if I had written it, I would have kept Mayfeld around and put him up as a mirror image of Han Solo. He mm. is Han, he is Han Solo if Han Solo had a slightly different character and had made different choices and had not run into Obi Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker and become involved with the rebellion. All the way back in episode four, this is who who Han Solo might have been. They are very similar in many ways. Um, I think Han Solo has a better heart than Mayfeld, but maybe he has a better heart. You know, and this is something that could have been explored. Maybe he has a better heart because of uh, well, going. Actually, I'm going to retract that. You look at how Han Solo came out of. Uh, Solo a Star Wars story and his experiences when he was in the Empire fighting for them and then you could contrast that to what it may have done to Mayfeld and you could have had something really fascinating there and that you have two sides of the same coin but one is light one is dark but both are scoundrels and I think that could have been interesting and that's Mm. what I think I would have done with the character and then you could added his his group back in with him and everything else if that's where you wanted to go. So I think that's a missed opportunity and I'm kind of up to two minds. I don't know if that makes it bad or just something I would have written differently.
0: Yeah. 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 We can all agree. However, that I liked your phrasing. Mm-hmm. This is just, you know, church too far bridge too far. Just like now comes a little harder to buy. It reminds me a little bit of just about uh, every Spider-Man villain. although they didn't redeem uh, Norman Osborn but they did with Doc Ock and just about everybody after that seemed to have a change of heart at some point, you know, and I'm like, this does not need to continue. You know, we get it with Anakin and Vader. That's the point of the series, but not, not everybody has to do that. So I just mentioned briefly that I liked all the action sequences. I liked all the shooting, the sharp shooting, all the stormtroopers falling off to their deaths in the waterfall and on top of the, the base. I thought that was great, them transporting the Rydonium and it's uh, volatile, and pirates showing up. They're trying to blow him up anyway. I liked all that. I thought the action stuff was great. That part was very enjoyable. And finally, uh, Mandel's final speech, where he basically turns Moff Gideon's words against him. <laughs> and says that, you know, it's the Rambo thing, where, no, you got it wrong. I'm coming to get you. <laughs> and uh, so I thought that was great. And I think uh, they've, you know, pretty much put all the chess pieces in place for the final episode, for the final, you know, throwdown. And it is, of course, going to be great. You know, by the time this uh, you hear this podcast, you should have already seen what happens at the end of the episode, uh, episode eight. But um, it's going to be great. Setup is all there and our appetites are really wet for it. So I think it did that well. It propelled us into the ending episode of the season to get everything where it needs to be. But uh, overall, I have to agree with my co-host in saying that a whole lot of stuff came off as a bit contrived. And <clears throat> I don't think pushing more boundaries or I don't think questioning your values is ever a bad plot point. But you still need to respect the boundaries of the character. This is what I'm talking about on Twitter all the time, when I'm talking about particularly about somebody like Superman. Any character that's been defined a certain way, if you're going to go too far away from that, people aren't going to buy it. And if you're going to go too far away from their definition, we need to have a very good reason why. And that's pretty much the, the theme And, you know, what we see Mandel do and what they do with Mayfeld and all that is, you know, we got to have some good reasons for them doing this stuff that is just, you know, on the fringe edges of their character or just outside the ring of their character. And, you know, that's the eternal Batman doesn't kill, Superman doesn't kill fight that we just keep going round and round and round about. I don't know if we're ever going to resolve that as geeks, but. Uh, my statement, my stand is always that it's important to have boundaries and definition because that's what gives the stories depth. If anybody can do anything at any time and it doesn't matter, then nothing matters. I just don't get why people don't get that, but whatever, that's just me. Anyway, so obviously that's a whole nother pod, so we need to wrap this one up. Hmm. uh, Great discussion, guys, as always. Uh, A lot of layered writing here. Uh, which is why we watch the show because it gives you a lot to think about. And uh, so I want to thank my co-host. Thank you so much, Nemesis. No problem. And I'll
1: just say uh, it's over, Mayfield. It's over. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Steve.
1: Yeah, glad to be here. Uh,
2: this was a really great discussion and hope to do it again uh, next week when we talk about the finale. Looking really,
3: really forward to that one.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff.
3: My pleasure, if for nothing else, but to watch the redemption of Boba Fett once
0: more. All right. Okay, we're going to end it there. And thank you so much to our listening audience. Uh, Don't forget to check us out on Twitter. Uh, We love to hear what you have to say. And uh, uh, next week, next time, we're going to deal with that incredible, incredible ending. So don't Mm. miss that show. And we will see you next time. On the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers.